This podcast contains some strong themes which are not for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. At around 8.30pm that night, after Kim had been on board for around an hour and a half, she jokingly texted Ollie, saying, quote, I'm still alive, by the way, but going down now, before adding that Peter had brought cookies and coffee and adding, quote, I love you. This was the last contact Kim had with the outside world. This is Red Rum, a podcast focusing on the true victims of crime. Episode 39, Kim Vaughan. It was a mild Friday morning in August 2017, and the still waters in a bay south of Copenhagen were frantically disturbed as the shouts and screams of a man rang out towards the shore. A private boat making its way just across the bay soon heard the man's shouts and acted quickly to rescue him from the cold waters. The white, middle-aged Danish national was Peter Madsen, a celebrated submarine builder, aerospace engineer and entrepreneur who was actually a local celebrity, having worked for the previous 30 years on impressive engineering projects, including co-founding Copenhagen Suborbitals, which was basically a rocket-making company. Their aim was to launch a manned rocket into space, and they actually succeeded in launching a number of test rockets with life-sized dummies attached, and the dummy returning back to the Earth intact. In time, Peter hoped to develop private space travel. Peter had always been interested in rockets, spaceships and submarines, and even as a teenager, he had been a member of the Danish Amateur Rocket Association. Peter had given a TED Talk, as well as having a number of filmed interviews and documentaries made about his ventures, and in 2008 he launched a privately built submarine named the Nautilus. By all accounts, Peter was a fascinating, incredibly intelligent person. And along with his fairly local fame, he had attracted the attention of a number of other reporters, presenters and journalists. One of these journalists was 30-year-old Kim Vaughan. Kim came across Peter's story the same way she came across most of her stories, by hard work and determination, and always thinking outside the box. Although Kim was living in Copenhagen in 2017, she was originally from Trelleborg in South Sweden. Trelleborg sits on the far south side of the Scandinavia Peninsula and is one of the most important ferry towns in Scandinavia. Growing up, It was normal for Kim to see the ferries arrive and depart, heading off to faraway, exciting lands full of possibilities. Kim lived with her mum, Ingrid, dad, Joachim, and brother, Tom. She grew up on the shores of the Baltic Sea and would spend her days playing on the beach with her brother and their family pup, a Beniz mountain dog. Her mum and dad met when they were 16 and 19, respectively, and their home was one full of laughter, hope and happiness. Each year, the whole family would gather together outside on the front lawn. 
Their beautiful wooden house was framed by an old, creaky wooden fence and a beautifully cared-for flower patch. The family would take a yearly family picture in the exact same spot each year without fail. Kim's mum, Ingrid, would add the most recent photo to the wall outside of Kim's bedroom. Both Ingrid and Joachim were journalists, and it wasn't long before both Kim and Tom were following in their footsteps. Tom took a keen interest in photography, and Kim in writing journalism. The family breakfast table was littered every morning with six or seven newspapers, and the family would sit around discussing what was good and useful to discuss further. Kim was incredibly curious and kind. She loved taking care of animals she'd come across in the greenery near her house and would always want to get to know the children and adults that she met. She was extremely focused, ambitious and dedicated to her work. And this, along with her kind, empathetic nature, allowed her to progress quickly in the world of journalism. She was just 19 years old when she graduated and began to prepare herself for a life beyond the confines of her 19 years so far. Although she had been on many trips abroad with her family over the years, she wanted to venture further afield and seek out the stories that she could share with the world. She wanted to be a voice for the people who were usually overlooked. Kim studied in Paris and attended London School of Economics to gain a BA degree in International Relations, before then progressing to complete a master's degree at Columbia University in New York. After graduating, she worked as a trainee for the European Union in India, before moving on to the Swedish Embassy in Australia, as well as for South China Morning Post in Hong Kong. Being away from home for such long periods was difficult for both Kim and her close family and friends, but everyone understood what Kim was doing and why she was doing it. They supported her endlessly and had no doubt that she would succeed. Kim's ultimate goal was to travel all over the world and continue seeking stories out. Over the next few years, she reported on war tourism in Sri Lanka, the torture chambers of Idi Amin in Uganda, and the exploitation of the environment and people in the South Pacific. Kim's hard work paid off in March 2016, when she was awarded a prize for Best Digital Reporting for one of her pieces on climate change and nuclear weapons testing in the Marshall Islands. Kim continued to progress and landed jobs reporting all over the world for Time magazine, The New York Times and The Guardian. During this time, Kim met a man called Ollie Stobb, who she quickly connected with and the pair started dating. It wasn't long before they had fallen deeply in love and decided to move in together in Copenhagen. Although still across the sea, Kim's dad Joachim felt much better about her at least being in Scandinavia and being that much closer to the family home and just over an hour away by car. By the summer of 2017, Kim and Ollie had been living in Copenhagen for a while and Kim was itching to move away again. She wanted to gain as much life experience as she could and she knew those stories were outside of her comfort zone and most likely outside of Copenhagen. 
she and Ollie spoke about where might be next for them, and it wasn't long before they settled on Beijing, at least for the time being. Whilst living in Copenhagen, Kim had come across the story of Peter Madsen, and the amazing fact he'd built his very own submarine, which he said was the biggest privately built submarine in the entire world, the Nautilus. Kim saw a story in Peter Madsen and got in touch with him to see if she could arrange an interview with him and his submarine. Initially, Peter did agree, but after a number of failed attempts at actually setting a date, and with Kim and Ollie's moving date drawing closer, Kim resigned herself to the fact she may have to let that story go. Although she was disappointed, she knew that there were big things to come and by the end of August 2017, she and Ollie would be in Beijing and opened up the limitless opportunities of living and immersing themselves in a new country. Although Kim and Ollie were excited to be moving halfway across the world, they had built a life here in Copenhagen and would be very sad to leave their friends behind. The couple spoke about what they could do to properly say goodbye and came up with the idea of having a final dinner party to celebrate their new journey ahead and say goodbye for now to their friends. On the morning of the dinner party, Kim received a text message from Peter asking if she would like to interview him that day. She could come on board the submarine and he'd answer some questions. Kim asked Ollie if he would mind her disappearing for a few hours before the dinner party so that she could get this interview. Ollie agreed. It was an incredible opportunity and said that of course she could leave him to it. He would get everything set up so that she could come back after and they could enjoy the evening with their friends as planned. Kim was thrilled. But after thinking about the reality of being underwater in this man-made submarine, she told Ollie she was a little scared to go. Ollie asked if she wanted him to go with her, but Kim knew they had to get everything sorted for tonight. And she'd done scarier, more difficult things than this before. Submarines are considered as relatively safe and reliable. Peter was a local celebrity with an extraordinary skill set as an engineer, and she was an experienced professional journalist. This was nothing compared to her time spent in the Marshall Islands or in Sri Lanka. It could be an excellent opportunity. She'd been chasing this interview for months and, with this renewed opportunity coming just six days before their planned departure to Beijing, Kim told Ollie it was incredible timing and she could finally get the interview she worried would never happen. Peter had texted Kim that she should come to the dock in Copenhagen for around 7pm that evening. Kim thanked him. She would only be able to stay for a couple of hours but was looking forward to the interview. Peter assured her that they could be back on the dock for around 9.30pm latest, which suited Kim fine. She would then get home herself and be back for around 10pm. At around 8.30pm that night, after Kim had been on board for around an hour and a half, she texted Ollie jokingly, saying, quote, I'm still alive by the way, but going down now, before adding that Peter had brought coffee and cookies, and, quote, I love you. A video was taken at around that same time by a passing boat. 
A still from that video shows Peter and Kim in the top part of the submarine, looking outwards. Kim is smiling, taking in the view all around them. Ollie texted Kim back, but after an hour had passed, he'd had no response from her. She was probably underwater now and had no signal. It was only just 9.30pm and although she was due back on land around that time, Ollie wasn't worried when he received no reply from Kim. Interviews always overran. And she and Peter were on a submarine. There were hundreds of reasons as to why they might be back, late to shore. But by 10.30pm and with no word from Kim... Ollie did begin to feel a little uneasy. He tried again to get in touch with her. Perhaps she had just gotten really delayed. Maybe they had run into some kind of trouble with the submarine and there was some issue. Either way, by 1am and still with no word from Kim, Ollie was incredibly worried. He waited as long as he could stomach but stopped making reasonable excuses for where she might be at around 1.45am and decided to call the police and report Kim as missing. A large search was immediately launched by police outside the docks, including the use of helicopters, private ships and the Danish Navy. But after hours of searching, they had no luck. A number of calls and underwater sonar were made in an attempt to get in contact with or at least locate the Nautilus. But none were answered and the submarine could not be located. It wasn't until the next morning, the 11th of August, that the Nautilus sent out a distress call. Just minutes later at around 11am, the submarine was seen sinking and the shouts of Peter Madsen were heard for a few moments before he was swiftly rescued by a boat passing by. Police were waiting at the dock along with Kim's worried friends and partner Ollie. The police met Peter and asked him where Kim was, to which he replied not to worry and that he had dropped Kim off on shore hours earlier, much before the submarine sank. He confirmed that no one had been injured and he was at least thankful for that, although devastated to lose his beloved Nautilus. He added that there had been a technical fault with the submarine, which is what had caused it to sink. The police were immediately suspicious of Peter's story and arrested him on the spot. With no sign of Kim for almost 15 hours, they suspected foul play and urgently needed to locate the submarine. Unfortunately, they also suspected that Peter had intentionally let water into the hull of the submarine in order to sink it. Thankfully, the Nautilus was quickly located by a team of investigators and rescued to be taken back to the forensics lab. Kim was not inside the submarine, which in some ways was obviously a huge relief to Kim's family and friends. But it also raised the question that if she wasn't in the submarine, and she hadn't made it home, where was she? Once the submarine was processed for forensics, it was also found that there was no technical fault and the Nautilus was intentionally abandoned and sunk. Peter was therefore held on charges of negligent homicide due to the fact that he had been the last person to see Kim alive and she had not been confirmed by anyone to have been dropped back on shore at any point 
after she'd boarded his submarine. Things weren't adding up, and the more they looked into Peter's behaviour that evening, and in the weeks and months prior, the more suspicious they became of him. Before Peter had been rescued and dropped on shore, police had decided to go to Peter's wife. She had been fully cooperative and had told the officers that she was surprised to see them. She had no idea anything was wrong, and in fact, had received a text message from Peter earlier that evening. Quote, I'm on a little adventure with Nautilus and doing well. Sailing in the moonlight, not diving. Hugs to cats. End quote. She told police she had no idea that there was even someone else on board because Peter hadn't mentioned anything to her. It was not a secret that Peter was in an open relationship with his wife and because of this, there would be no reason for him to lie to her about having someone else on board, more so because Kim was there in a professional capacity. Time passed with no news of any findings for Kim's family and friends. But 11 days after Kim's disappearance, devastating news came when a cyclist discovered a human torso that had washed up on shore near where Kim had last been seen. Kim's family and friends were expecting the worst and their fears were confirmed when DNA from the torso was found to match Kim's. With Kim's torso being found, the coroner concluded that she had 14 puncture wounds, likely made with a sharp object. She had been stabbed. With this new evidence, Peter decided he needed to change his story about what happened on board the submarine that night. He told investigators that Kim had died on the Nautilus, but that it was an accident. He claimed that he had climbed out ahead of Kim and was standing on the top of the submarine. He said he was holding the hatch door, which weighed 154 pounds, but somehow he lost his footing and the hatch hit Kim on the head. He then said that he heard a thud, and when he finally got down to see what had happened... Kim was on the floor in a huge pool of blood. Quote, It was a terrible accident, a disaster. No doctor could have done anything. Kim was severely injured. There was a pool of blood where she had landed. I touched her neck, but she had no pulse. End quote. He said that he then decided he couldn't manage to lift Kim's body out of the submarine as she was, so stabbed her body to allow gas to escape so that she would sink. Officers were not convinced by this story at all, and over the next few weeks, divers continued to search the same area of the bay, and before too long, they found more body parts, all weighed down with pieces of metal, likely from Peter's submarine. They found Kim's arms, legs, and head as well as another bag which contained a knife and some of Kim's clothes. Police also found Kim's underwear hidden in the submarine underneath one of the floor plates in the engine room. Now that investigators had the skull, they would be able to determine if Peter's story of blunt force trauma was true. The coroner quickly determined, however, that there were no fractures on the skull, and so Peter's second story about the hatch falling accidentally on Kim and killing her was a lie. So, 
Peter decided to change his story yet again. This time, he said that he was in a different section of the submarine to Kim, and that particular section had filled with toxic exhaust fumes after the air pressure had suddenly dropped, and so Kim had simply died from carbon monoxide poisoning. He said he tried to help, but he couldn't open that specific compartment until after she died. He then admitted that he'd pulled her body into the bathroom and dismembered her there. Again, he said that was in order to get her out of the submarine. The coroner found that Kim's lungs had no signs of exhaust gases in the tissue. The coroner also noted that the puncture wounds on Kim's torso were found to be done around the time of her death, and the blood spatter stains found on Peter's military boiler suit were not consistent with his argument that he dismembered Kim's body after her death, purely as a means of removing her from the submarine. Peter had also claimed he only did this as a means of care for Kim's family. I really don't understand the logic there, but that's what he claimed. Of course, that was found to be utter BS. The coroner also found stab and mutilation wounds in the groin area, as well as small puncture wounds, which were determined to likely be from some kind of syringe. Because of those mutilation wounds around the groin area, the coroner disputed Peter's reasoning for stabbing her as to release gases, stating it was seemingly more an intentional, sexually motivated attack. The coroner continued, saying that although it was impossible to fully establish the cause of death because the body had been submerged in water, it was highly likely that Kim was either strangled or her throat had been cut. On further investigation into Peter, police soon discovered a huge amount of questionable materials on his computer. He had written blog posts, which he sent to friends and shared on the internet, in which he spoke of violence against women, including stabbing and murdering women. At Peter's trial, a female witness testified that he had sent her a link to a post he'd written, describing it as a, quote, entrance to my head, end quote. The blog post was titled Heaven and Hell and included a number of violent fantasies, including, quote, If you feel angry with your boss, stick a knife in her back. Why hesitate? She will not be missed by anyone. Bow to your anger. Use your knife, end quote. Officers also examined Peter's computer and what they found was chilling. Just a warning, all of this episode is awful, but this next part is just overwhelmingly so. There's a lot of horrific information in just a few sentences, so brace yourself. On Peter's computer, there were over 40 clips of animated and snuff films, which included women being impaled, hanged and beheaded. Hard disks that were found were also examined, showing over 100 videos of women being murdered, tortured, beheaded or sexually assaulted and raped. Even more hauntingly, the night before Peter lured Kim onto his submarine, he had watched a video on his phone titled, quote, Young Woman in Pain as She Slowly Decapitated, end quote. 
the prosecutor actually read out and played a number of clips and links showing these things in court. At trial, DNA evidence was presented to strengthen the prosecution's argument, although given the sheer amount of evidence they already had, it really wasn't needed. Traces of Peter's DNA were found on Kim's body and Kim's DNA was found inside the submarine. Even when Peter was rescued from the waters on the day after Kim's disappearance, he was seen to have dried blood around his nose. Officers took swabs for DNA, evidence, and it was soon matched to be Kim's. There was also the blood evidence on Peter's military bodysuit. The trial also heard how Peter had previously texted a woman he was casually dating that he had a murder plan ready and she should be tied up on the Nautilus. Although at trial, he did say this was a joke and that he never meant what he said. Another two witnesses testified that Peter had asked them separately to come on board his submarine. The first witness said that she was working as a volunteer at Peter's workshop and had already been on board previously, but when he asked again at the end of June, she declined. The second witness testified that three months before Peter murdered Kim, he and this witness had met by chance, and he invited her back to his submarine. The witness declined, but just two days before Peter murdered Kim, he again invited this witness onto the submarine. The witness said, quote, I thought it was a little odd that he wrote to me. If it had been my submarine, I would not have invited me when I didn't answer the first time. End quote. Even more evidence was presented at the trial, this time of Peter gloating that he knew about the best place to hide a corpse, as well as generally talking to various witnesses about his fascination with corpses. Peter was still alleging that Kim's death had been an accident, and said, quote, There is nothing worse that can happen to a person like me. The moment Kim Vall died, there was nothing left for me to fight for. End quote. This man said nothing worse can happen to me. Me. Him. A- absolutely no mention of remorse for what he did to Kim. Even if he's playing that it was an accident, he says nothing about that devastating fact that Kim was now dead. The prosecution told the court that Peter's psychiatric report found him to be an intelligent man, including psychopathic tendency, including no empathy or feelings of guilt. One witness told the court she had a conversation with Peter in which he described himself as a, quote, psychopath but a loving one. Peter told the court he felt suicidal after Kim's death and said that he had planned to take his own life after sinking his submarine. Quote, In my shock, I thought it was the right thing to do. I didn't want a dead body in my submarine. I put a rope around her feet to drag her out. I thought a fitting end for Peter Madsen would be on board the Nautilus. I decided I couldn't continue the life I had been living. End quote. This is the Peter Madsen show to him. He has absolutely no regard for Kim's life, Kim's legacy, or her family and friends. Even at the trial, Peter refused to go into any kind of detail about what had happened that night, leaving Kim's family and friends without any real answers. 
He just said, Kim's death was a, quote, very, very traumatic event, which I do not want to describe, end quote. Peter's defence was incredibly slim, to be honest. They really didn't have a lot to present to support their story that Kim's death was an accident. There was simply too much other evidence to support the premeditation of the murder. Things like the tools used to kill and dismember Kim, the numerous women Peter tried to lure onto his submarine before Kim's murder, and, of course, the hundreds of sexually violent and murder videos found on his computer. The most they could come up with was that Peter was not the only person with access to the computer in his workshop and that the content found on his computer was not Peter's. His defence also brought an expert witness from the Danish Technological Institute where it was introduced that she believed Peter's account of the accident was technically, quote, plausible. That was it. They really didn't have a lot to present for defence and so the verdict was given and Peter Madsen was found not psychotic or delusional, so fully responsible and guilty of all three charges of premeditated murder, aggravated sexual assault and desecrating a corpse. Peter was given a life sentence and although he immediately appealed his sentence, it was upheld. It's extremely rare for a life sentence to be handed down for the murder of a single person in Denmark. In certain cases, however, if a prisoner is deemed to be too dangerous to be released, then it is possible for that person to remain in custody for life. The judge said of the decision to send down a life sentence, quote, The court has been unanimous in coming to this result. There is clear evidence that the accused has shown an interest in killing and dismembering people. This is a cynical and pre-planned sexual assault of a particularly brutal nature on a random woman who, in connection with her journalistic work, accepted an invitation for a sailing trip on the accused's submarine. End quote. In 2020, a documentary was produced on the crime where Peter actually admitted, for the first time, that Kim's death was not an accident. Although he has still not ever given a full confession as to why or what happened. Then, in October of 2020, whilst in prison, Peter threatened a psychiatrist and forced his way out of the room he was being held in and actually managed to escape prison. He claimed to have a bomb belt on him and given his engineering expertise, prison officers feared this could be true. The bomb squad was deployed and there was a standoff just a few hundred metres outside of the prison. The bomb story was found to be completely false and Peter was subsequently recaptured and taken straight back to prison. Kim's mum Ingrid and dad Joachim followed most of the trial from the courtroom but decided not to be present for the verdict. They subsequently set up the Kim Vol Memorial Fund and wrote a book together called A Voice Silenced, which outlined Kim's life and the legacy she left behind. The Kim Vol Memorial Fund has raised over $400,000 so far and helps to fund female reporters to, quote, cover subculture, broadly defined, and what Kim liked to call 
the undercurrent of rebellion, end quote. The Kim Memorial Fund was started to honour Kim's legacy. Quote, Kim wanted more women to be out in the world, brushing up against life, and we would like to help bend the world in her vision, end quote. And I just wanted to end on a quote from Ingrid, Kim's mum. I'll also link the website for the Memorial Fund below. It's an extremely important and worthwhile fund. And on the website, there is a video of a talk with Ingrid and Joachim Vall. This case has touched me in such a profound way and I am truly moved by the person that Kim was and her legacy as it continues on. If you get one thing from this episode, I hope it will be to take the road that changes things for the better. Think of others and make a difference. You absolutely can. Kim did and continues to do so. This quote is from Ingrid Bull. I wake up in the middle of the night. Two different ideas have taken root in my consciousness during my half slumber. Ideas refusing to be silenced until I've acted on them. The first is that Kim needs to live on through a memorial fund. She will not be forgotten. The second is this book. The truth must be told and we will write it. Kim will be depicted as the engaging and strong woman she was, as the human and journalist Kim, not as the victim. The decision gives me some respite. Our luta continua. The struggle continues. Red Rum is written and presented by Grace Cordell. It's produced by Russ Clark and Grace Cordell. Music and sound design by Russ Clark. Title music by Benjamin James.